of you know 90 miles an hour, 95 miles an hour, you're you're not giving a greater engine and, and a bigger, 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 bigger engine. Because I've worked with individuals that have had a 500 deadlift, 300, 400 squat, um, and then they can't throw. So what what happens with that is you're giving them a really big engine, but you're not fine tuning the system. You're not calibrating the system to be super sensitive. What you're doing is you need to give them a very sensitive calibration system so that they can begin to fine tune their movements on their own. So that's the, I guess, the end result for how do I coach individuals. You go through a guided discovery process, whether or not you're working with 10-year-olds or 21-year-olds trying to get drafted. And then at the end of it all, you're trying to make them autonomous and independent so that they can do it on their own. And that's the hardest part because how many, how many individuals, how many pitchers alone do you know that are independent with their own throwing process? That was strength coach and skill acquisition specialist, Miguel Aragoncio. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System in KBox or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that, as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to episode 169 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. Our guest is Miguel Aragoncio. He's a strength coach and skill acquisition specialist based out of Boston, Massachusetts. Miguel has worked with athletes of all levels, and particularly to the interest of this show, um, by the way, all levels in the traditional sense, so as a strength and conditioning coach, physical preparation, whatever the term is for that specifically that resonates with you. Um, But more, uh, more recently, he now specializes, or one of his specialties, is working with baseball pitchers specifically on pitching mechanics. So not just the GPP portion, but specifically their sports skill and getting them to throw faster. In that realm, he's had a lot of success. You'll see in the show notes for this episode, him taking a pitcher through a 30-40 minute process by which they tacked five to seven miles an hour on pitching speed. 
And what's really cool about this and really this branch of the field where we're starting to integrate biomechanics and motor learning with traditional physical preparation principles and all this is coming together in this way that the sports skill specifically is getting enhanced. Um, I just, I really enjoy seeing that all come together. Um, again, not that the weight room doesn't have the potential to raise sports skills. It certainly does. But the more we can learn about what that final output, all those little details of that final output, I think the better, regardless of whether you work only with the weight room with athletes and you're not outside of that, or you're working specifically skill-wise with athletes, this episode has a lot to offer for everybody. Um, and I say that because not only is Miguel going to get into the strength and conditioning route, his background, uh, he's also going to get into how skill acquisition works, supersets and complexes just within the scope of basic lifts, but he's also going to go in a lot of detail on how that works in with baseball pitchers and creating outputs for better specific sports skills. Miguel is one of the most intelligent and innovative coaches in the field. He has an extensive experience as well with PRI or Postural Restoration Institute, which many of our prior guests have been, and he's been an assistant in their workshops. Miguel has an expansive knowledge of the human body, how it works, and how to get athletes better at their own sports skills. Our field is growing at a rapid rate, and although there's a lot of hardline definitions on the scope of what a strength coach does, I think it's always good to get outside that box and then come back again with a little more knowledge. So again, whether whatever element of the field that you're working in, I think this show has so much to offer. Even if it's not necessarily teaching an athlete how to get over a hurdle faster or swing a bat faster or serve a tennis ball, even if it's learning to do a clean better or whatever you're trying to do in the weight room a little better or getting better or allowing a better sensory experience within that lift, this episode has a lot to offer and I'm excited to get onto the show. So let's get to it. Episode 169 with Miguel Aragoncio. Miguel, uh, so what took you on your journey from perhaps, I guess you could say, more traditional strength and conditioning to, and dancing as a background too, by the way, to where you're on now? Um, so I guess you could say it always started from an early, early age, I guess to go way, way back from uh, the context of dancing. Um, I was really bad at a lot of sports. Uh, I, I didn't have the best VO2, even from a, a high school age perspective. Um, I just knew I wasn't good at running. I just hated it. So I didn't do well in soccer, basketball. I, I've been five, four my whole life. So that's, you know, not that many <laughs> basketball players do really well at that height. Um, kind of reflects in all my Instagram handles and uh, social Mixie, media handles. Mugsy Bogues, right? <laughs> Got a Mugsy Bogues. We're playing off of that. Um, so, so long story short, I'm like, all right, I got to do something. All my other friends are doing some, you know, awesome stuff in high school sports, formal sports. So I chose dancing. Uh, and there was just a lot of things that came out of it because, you know, there's no one there to tell you rules. There's no one there to tell you right or wrong. It's, it's kind of just free form. Um, and with dancing there, you know, that kind of blossomed into me seeking out other dancers. Uh, I went to school and I went to college in Philly, um, Temple university. And I just sought out more dancers there. And a lot of my professors, they even asked me like when junior, senior year, they were like, Hey, so what are you here for? Are you, are you here to dance or are you to learn? And then I, I said both, and then I shrugged my shoulders and kept on going. Um, so there was always like this this kind of stigma of like, you know, it, there's not a really formal process for this learning, uh, especially in the context of dance. So I always had to seek it out myself is kind of what it is. There's always this deliberate process of learning that I had. Um, 
so I don't know if you want me to keep on going into like the, I guess you could say the internship route of strength conditioning, that sort of thing. Yeah. I, well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about with, uh, with your, tra- uh, your journey was basically how you got to where you are now and like in the motor learning space. Cause I think that, that, that motor learning space is not a common landing place for a lot right, of people yeah, in the industry. Cool. It's, it's a common buzzword, I think as part of like the interdisciplinary nature of it. But like the fact that you're actually working with skill like baseball players and you're using your background as a physical preparation or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah, it's tough uh, to have. There's so many names. It's such a young industry, you know, um, it's not like a well-documented industry from like, you know, the 1900s or whatever it may be. But um, I, I, from going off of what I said earlier about wanting to, uh, you know, learn for myself, kind of this deliberate learning process, there was nobody that tell, t- ever told me like this is the right and wrong way to do this for dancing. Um, they kind of just said, this is your own style if you're doing it your way. So I kind of just use that context. I'm like, okay, this is just how I do it. Uh, because this is what my body says to do. And this is what, you know, the music is telling me was another thought process, right? If you're into any uh, creative aspect of dance, like the music tells you to do something, so you do it. Um, and there's no really, there's nobody ever saying you're right or wrong. Uh, at least that's the the modern concept within the dance world. So anyway, um, you know, how I landed into the motor learning world um, I was always looking to find out for reasons why dancing the way I danced and way others danced, why it was the way it was. Um, so I actually sought that out from, you know, I got hurt dancing. I pulled a groin doing flares. If anybody's familiar with that from gymnastics kind of tr- trickled into to breaking or b-boying, I pulled the groin and I was like, all right, what else can I do? It was pretty bad. I couldn't walk for a couple months, like walk correctly. And, you know, if I, if I knew more at the time, I would have been like, oh, let, let's just do this one quick movement. And then I would have been A-OK sort of thing. But obviously, I didn't know at the time. Um, so I went to the gym, started working out, doing that sort of thing. I kept on reading on reading all these articles online. This is when, you know, T-Nation was huge, that sort of thing. Uh, it probably still is very much so. But, um, you know, that's where kind of a lot of the industry leaders kind of got their footing in the beginning, if that makes sense. You know, yeah, golden, the golden days. Yeah. I remember with Eric and yeah, Mike yeah, Robertson yeah. You know, and all that stuff. And then before that. Rabbit hole. Um, and then I, you know, I, uh, I said to myself, this is right after I graduated college, um, kept on dancing by the way through college. And then after college did a little bit of comp- competing, didn't do too much with that because again, there's always like those outliers, like you're going to get dancers that just compete all over the world. And I was not one of those. <laughs> I did more of the intellectual and helping people out sort of thing. Um, so I said to myself, all right, maybe I'm going to start learning how to help people instead of trying to just become the best dancer I can be. And, and, you know, I'm not sure if anybody's familiar with that, but you're not going to be making the most money doing that. So, um, at least in the beginning nowadays, there's a lot more with that and that's a whole nother topic on itself. Um, so anyway, fast forward a couple of years, I'm doing an internship, uh, at Eric Cressy's and Cressy Sports Performance, um, didn't get hired right away, moved back home, found out that there's this place like 15 minutes away from my home. Turns out Kevin Neald is, uh, having a, he has a facility 15 minutes from my home. Didn't even know. Maybe I should have used Google a little better. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, fast forward another couple of years, I get a call from, uh, Eric Cressy, uh, get, get hired, uh, 2014. And, you know, I, I meet, and not my meat, but I, I just get in, into the whole context. In Massachusetts, is a huge uh, strength and conditioning um, 
how can I say, just like a big plethora of individuals that are just into strength conditioning and all the outlier and fringe things. I, you know, I met a couple of the industry leaders just going to these random like pop-ups and forums and uh, these meetings that we all hosted, um, kind of uh, just met a lot of individuals that are like trying to try some really cool things. And, you know, it's, it's interesting just thinking about it now. They have where these people are now. It's kind of interesting thinking about it. Um, but anyway, um, going back to my story, not other individual stories, that's a whole nother topic. Uh, came across a couple really interesting books. Um, and this was just like, I, I looked through people's libraries. Uh, I often found that by reading things online, you only find the, like the one or 10% sorts uh, kind of things. But in order to really kind of understand where somebody's mindset and my, uh, thought process is, you need to really just visit them in person and maybe even visit their library. That was just something I was really into. Uh, and okay. I found a couple, you know, I, I found my, the first context of PRI was in 2012. I, I found it during my internship in 2012 at, uh, in CSP, Sports Performance. I found this binder and I was just like, what is this binder? Like, well, I don't understand this concept. This, these words are just, I, I understand the words, but they, they're not talked about. Right. And it was the first, the first, one of the first the times I, I ran into PRI, um, it was a postural respiration manual that I ran into at uh, the library at CSP. And then literally like the next week I signed up for um, a course and turned out it was the same one that I was eventually going to be hired at in between all these things at Kevin Neal's place. So anyway, all these things uh, aside, I, you know, found a lot of books, Gabriel Wolf, uh, motor learning, um, dynamical systems, it's dynamical. I got the book over here somewhere. It's uh, one of these books that has a big triangle on it. It's talking about the constraints led approach. Uh, the, na the name escapes me at the moment, but I read a couple of these books and I'm like, wow, this is really crazy stuff because this is like things that can actually help people dance better. Is kind of the context that I looked at everything. Um, and I guess you can say I've just translated things into the context of wherever I am at now, you know, in the context of baseball. So I don't need to keep on talking, but that's kind of how I came about it. And I just kept on reading books that are adjacent to uh, the context of motor learning and things that will just help me more and more understand that stuff. So, yeah, did you uh, did you get into coach? So, I mean, because you actually coach the skill element of baseball. I think that's I don't think you mentioned that, but that's that's definitely something <laughs> that's pretty important in there. So, right. So that being said, about 2016, 17, I was like saying to myself, Okay, now this is going to definitely go against what many individuals in the strength conditioning world are even into. And uh, whether or not people agree, who knows, we'll find out. But, um, you know, I'm trying to be transparent here, but I did a lot of the lifting side of things, which is, you know, just good. It's a good thing to do to understand how to program and how to coach. It's great. But then I just knew there's something missing. You know, we can talk about, okay, this is your role. Stick to it. You know, stay in your lane. Um you know, but when you stay in your lane, you also have the option for changing lanes. Uh, you know, analogies need to be able to be, you know, adapted. So if I'm trying to help individuals throw faster, well, we can get them to deadlift 500 for reps. We can get them to have vertical jumps and lateral bounds for so many feet. Um, we can do all the RSI, et cetera, et cetera. But what happens when somebody just simply doesn't understand what it means to throw? Um, and it, it, it's funny because I poke fun of myself because I, I myself don't have a really good ability to throw. So I just post random funny stories on my Instagram talking about, you know, Hey, look at my, how bad my external rotation is because honestly, I bench three to four times a week because I'm, you know, in my head, I did powerlifting for so many years. So I'm still keeping up with it. 
but it, it's just there to poke fun at it and to bring the whole transparent side of things of both sides of that coin of, okay, my throwing is bad, but I can help you throw better. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And if I can help you throw better using one to two, maybe three drills tops, and then we stick with those movements and skill acquisition side of things, that's where it gets really interesting. And you don't need a lot of different drills to improve one's relationship with your own body. So that's kind of where I'm going with it. Yeah, right on. And I that's uh, and that's something that is really that I'm really excited to talk about on this show because I mean, even if people don't coach uh, who are listening, and I think we have a variety of types of coaches listening: those who coach sports skills, those who just are in the physical prep world. And I think even if you're just in physical prep, just like I feel like everybody should. I, I mean, what is true? Like even like coaching a more complex lift in the weight room, like the Olympic lifts, takes uh, there's a lot more skills to that than there is just coaching a, a squat or a deadlift or a bench press or things like that so those people who include those lifts in there i think there's a little bit more degree of motor learning but even beyond that i think that like anyone should have the experience of coaching coaching a skill beyond that like uh like yeah like pitching a baseball something that's complex or people who work in track and field or just the process by which skill acquisition happens because i think that it's very easy to say like oh yeah my athletes did a really good job on their squats and cleans today but to me that might just mean well, those athletes did a good job of doing what you told them to do, but that doesn't mean performance got better necessarily. You know what I'm saying? Like, and 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 in these raw human organic skills, that's where uh, you know it's almost like you can even. And I know we'll talk about the internal and external and self organization. Or <laughs> I'm losing my Z's here, but I mean that's where all that stuff, where all the motor learning stuff, really meets the rubber meets the road on that stuff because it's like if you. Because it almost, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter. It does matter. P- movement matters in the weight room. Patterns matter in the weight room. But they, it's even more critical when you get out there on the field and start coaching someone their actual skill. So I, I 100% agree. And I just want to have a, a bit of a disclaimer um, just because it, it can get certainly taken out of context when somebody just listens to this, you know, and they don't know who I am, what I do. Um, when When you take somebody from you know, moderate to, I guess you could say more than moderate from about, we'll just even call it out eighties, mid eighties to nineties and above that, that whole process is probably going to be highlighted versus what the kid grew up with seventies, sixties, and then how he went through puberty lifted correctly. And all these things, those are all within the same, like you need that. Like, I'm not saying I know more than the pitching coach or more than the strength coach you still need a good foundation, but sometimes there's little differences in terms of how you can coach one specific thing to help nudge somebody from 85 to 90. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of a disclaimer. The second disclaimer is um, I, I 100% respect that college collegiate strength conditioning, uh, you know, big league teams, they're going to have restrictions on what they can do. Like I'm not going to go up to a big leaguer and say, you need to do this to get better because chances are they got there without me. Um, and, and the same goes for collegiate strength conditioning. They, they often have their own pitching staff. So I have the fortune of working in the private sector. So there's that side of things. So that's the second disclaimer. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of situations. Yeah. People in the, 
you know, physical prep coaches collegially in the pros, et cetera, et cetera. It seems like it really is the private sector where those worlds can blend the most, where if you're in the like collegiate sector, you have your job and you, it's, it's, it's different. Um, but I, I just enjoy the idea of skill acquisition just because it's, right. I mean, like, like what you said with dancing, like no one was telling you the rules or, or what, how you had to do or what you had to do. And I'm sure that that, really gave you a really good appreciation for what it really means when you do go, I guess, quote unquote, coach somebody up, like, like, especially in the weight room, I feel like, but I mean, obviously, we need to keep people healthy. But to me, everything lately has just been this thought of, of, of how do I just teach people since my job, um, if my job is just to coach people in the weight room, well, I want to make your movement as good as is as good as I possibly can. So how do I foster a environment where that can be the case um and you can kind of like learn or self i guess self-organize however you want to call it so that i can just get you to move a little better and i hope that general movement can transfer into what you are doing um so i mean it's been a jer- i mean i just like even watching the baseball video you sent me of you going through uh the skill of, of, of changing this guy's skills it's, it's highly fascinating to me because i'm always thinking about well i've i've been through enough athletes that have gotten stronger but haven't um, as a, both a track coach, a uh, strength coach for swimming. And again, not saying that, I mean, getting strong is important for sure, but I've been through enough of those situations where the athlete got stronger in a particular set of lifts and didn't improve their performance. And granted, there's always a lot of factors, but the more I learn about movement, the more I start to see a lot more of the equation. It was like what Doug uh, Katigi and I were talking about the last podcast, like just like getting outside of your box as much and often as you can into a a different portion of the field and just to come back into what you do and you can understand it a little bit better. Even if you don't end up actually doing that other job, you can understand it a little bit better. Definitely. Definitely. I agree with that. Uh, so anyway, sorry, sorry to rabbit trail that, but, um, okay. So, so your experience, um, l- let's get into a little bit about your thoughts on even working whether be it in the weight room or the actual skill. Tell me a little bit about what you think about the whole continuum of like cueing, internal, external cueing, self-organization, guided discovery. Like what is your thought process when you're like, I want an athlete end game to throw a baseball faster or whatever they want to do better. Um, how, how, how do you act, you know, maybe it's not a baseball, maybe it's something else, but like, how do you act as a guide to help them get the most out of their organic and innate movement without trying to program them a different way? Right. And, uh, so, so, you know, yes, I think you asked like four questions right there (laughs) Um, (laughs) to start with, how do I, you know, get them to go from point A to point Z? Uh, let's use that as the, the, the guiding question. Um, you know, it's, it's telling because I'm working right now and I have two groups of athletes I'm working with specifically, uh, between 10 and 12 and then 14 plus. So, so I'm quite literally doing that right now. Um, uh, and being transparent again, uh, what I do is whenever we do quite literally any movement, uh, I show them the movement and then I ask them, so what did you feel? And then everybody without a doubt always says, Oh, I feel good. I'm like, okay, that's not what I was asking, mm-hmm. but what I meant to ask was where do you feel it? What do you feel? Why do you feel it? And then it just makes them turn, you know, their brains on just a little bit more, whether or not they answer, they answer out loud verbally, or they begin answering in their own head, what am I really feeling? What actually happens is whenever I ask some question like that, um, it begins to build a mental representation. So say you walk up a step and then I ask you, what do you feel? You might feel your back. 
And then we will begin to change, or I will begin to change some of those, the environment so that you can begin to feel, you know, your glutes, your hamstrings. So maybe that, uh, the concept here is if the step is too high, you're going to feel something different. If the step is too low, you're going to feel something else different altogether. Or maybe the steps are too wide, like they're, they're just too long in distance. So you're going to have to take a long lunge forward, if that makes sense. So, so with all these being said, um, you're getting so many different uh, sensations so that that mental representation of whatever you're feeling is just being you, is just me asking you. Um, I don't know if that's internal cueing, but what I what I think of that as is, is uh, I'm self-organizing, allowing the individual to self-organize um, on, on the context of building a better mental representation of what their body is doing. So I'm literally doing this with 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, all, all the way to like 70, honestly, like with the older population that I work with, um, just so we can kind of redirect what we're doing. So I, I think of that as a guided discovery sort of things. So whether or not we're doing one leg RDLs, lateral lunges, uh, it, it's, it's, a it's a way to coach. So that's what I think of it as. Um, to answer some of your other questions about internal cueing, um, internal cueing in my head is a good thing because, uh, you know, you read enough of the research and you begin to understand that even sometimes the experts will need an internal cue to become more aware of a specific thing that they are lacking. So perhaps that they, uh, the internal cue is they are, they are quite literally lacking the mental representation of what happens at valgus for their knees. So you just tell them the one thing and then they do a lot better. Who is to say that that one thing that you told them internal cueing decreased their performance in whatever activity um, by 10%. Like, like that's the, the kind of message right now because internal cueing will reduce power output, right? In reality, who is to say that you leaving out the internal cue won't help them to get better, right? That's that's another question altogether. Um, it, it it often speaks about it meaning the research. The research speaks about internal cueing or external cueing in the context of novices versus experts, and that's where the you know the description the the uh, kind of debate lies. What is what is good for who? And then that's where it kind of like loses some of that steam because internal queuing actually has some benefit and external queuing obviously has loads of benefits. We can obviously look at all the different research from all the different individuals. Gabriel Wolf, uh, I think Brett Bartholomew did some things, if I'm correct with that. Nick Wickelman, excuse me, Nick Wickelman did a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. um, so we can just look towards those sorts of things for external queuing and the benefits there. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, what uh specifically too with like the novices, and I'll go back and I I really like the idea of of having people do something and just asking them what they felt because I think uh, getting people in tune with what's happening with their bodies is definitely something that I don't feel like is is very um, emphasized, just because I and being around enough good athletes versus enough athletes who I guess I mean are not as successful. The successful ones tend to have a much better understanding of what's going on with their body, like. And it's almost, but then I'm like, well, how do I get these people who aren't as good to get better at that? <laughs> and that, which is the question, but I definitely, I definitely like that, that idea of thinking about that. And so, but you were saying internal and external cues, novices advanced. I, I mean, with the, with the research kind of say that the more 
advanced an athlete gets, the more they need to get away from internal cueing and, and novices right. would do better just to get them in that, I guess, basic region of a mechanical model. And once they're in that basic zone, then it's more external cueing or guided exploration and you're not really using cues as much. So, so going back to what you were just talking about, like, you know, advanced uh, internal, external, um, sometimes the, these novices have no idea what's going on with one leg RDL, just using that as an example. They have zero clue what's going on. Um, so, you know, if you tell them to, you know, I, I don't even know what an external cue is for that, but if you, you're using a sprinting for an example, if you're going into the context of external cueing, excuse me, push the ground away, that sort of thing, push away from the wall behind you, excuse me. So you're going to those words. Uh, they might not even understand what those words mean because yeah. like, why am I pushing away from the wall? Like I'm just running for it. So th there's not really like this contextual organization going on. Um, but if you tell them, okay, you sprinted and we did a different position, we sprinted and we started in a different position. What do you feel? You're building better context is, is really where we're going with it. Um, can you repeat that the second part of that question that you asked? Um, yeah, no, I'm trying to think of what the second part was. I think it was something oh, to do with, uh, yeah, it was something to do with yeah, the, the <laughs> novice. For, basically, once you get an athlete in the bandwidth, I think this is the last thing I was talking about, is once you get an athlete in that basic bandwidth of what the, the good technique, acceptable technique is in the sports skill, uh, then oh, you stay away from internal. Yeah, then, I mean, yeah. then what's, I mean, is it, or even external, I wonder, like like in the sense of like, um, I, I, I mean, I, well, I okay. like using just, then does it become just using drills to, to do be your, the coach for you of sorts or, or changing the constraints, I guess you could say, or, or giving them yeah. a new sensation before they do the activity. I don't know what that is. Like, what's, the, <laughs> what is that? Is that guided discovery? Like, what's that called? Like, where you're not really, you're using the, you're using environment to create a situation that they need to solve that problem. The funny thing is you're always using some type of constraints, but you're not really thinking of it like that. Yeah. You know, hurdles in front of lunges. If you're using a wall for throwing against the, uh, with a med ball throw, I did it earlier today. There's, uh, you know, if somebody's using too much of a leg whip during their med ball scoop tosses or med ball throws, you just tell them to get into a rocker position and do that for three reps. And then afterwards you just tell them, okay, now do your normal throw like you did before the, the rocker drill and then ask them how they feel. And whatever happens, happens, whether it's good or bad. Um, the interesting thing is with this self-organization side of things is not many people talk about what happens when things go awry or when things go bad. Uh, I'm more than open talking about it because sometimes things go bad. Um, and, and that's when you want to make sure you, your, your practice and your drills and your, your uh, you know, putting your, your best foot forward with your own drills is, is kind of what you're doing with, for your athletes. Um, what you're talking about in terms of the external cueing and making sure that are you going to do one or the other? Well, with some of the athletes, you just need to have a good mental representation. Um, meaning, do you know what's happening in this movement? Uh, something that I do, this is not speaking about the research side of things, but a practical side of things is I will very literally ask an athlete, do you want me to explain what's going on with this, with your body? Or do you just want to do the drill? Cause I'm giving them the autonomy to figure it out. Like, do you want me to tell you what's going on or do you want to figure it out for yourself? Hmm. Um, cause it gives them the choice. Like sometimes yeah. they just want to lift. It's like, okay, I get it. You're, you know, you just want to get after it, do your thing. Um, so I give them the option. Yeah, no, that's, I've, I've never heard of anyone presenting like that. Like here you have the, basically it's almost like you have the option on how coached up you want to be. I know athletes are definitely, there's some athletes that I work with no, who, are, who are just like, 
they really want coaching and there's others who uh just just like just give me the thing and i'm gonna do it you know and yeah, and you're always trying to find which way to to optimally serve each athlete. Yeah, and I've done I've done both. Sometimes I, I you know I I have the tendency to keep on talking, and that's whether whether or not it's a testament from the, the this uh, um, this podcast so far. But uh, I will literally just say, do you want me to explain what happens in this drill, or do you just want to do it? Like, and and that kind of uh, kind of filters out however it does. Yeah, that's a good question to ask. I'll keep that in mind. I, uh, I mean, I feel like we don't, we tend not to ask our athletes and there's, there's, I think there's certainly times not to ask athletes quite like too many questions, but I generally don't think we ask athletes questions quite enough. You know, it's like we want to avoid, obviously if they're, if they're trying to run the show and it's not going in the right direction, but I think most athletes are going to give you a pretty straight answer and we can learn a lot from right. it. Uh, so, you know, with that, with all that in mind, like, so how do you, and, and this speaking, maybe, maybe it could be really anything. It could be baseball. It could be a lift in the weight room, but What's your thought process on using and designing drills to improve like the main skill we're trying to get better? Uh, so if right. someone if someone needs to improve something, I mean baseball, like since you work with pitching, that's a real easy context to draw. Yeah. But what are your what are your thoughts on like what's your first thoughts on how do I organize some constraints to improve this from either a joint like joint perspective, like subtle little alterations right. in the height mm-hmm. of a limb or, or something like that. But what's your thought process on creating drills and using drills to help a skill? This is like one of those, like, tell me your life story in 30 seconds. Questions. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's like, what's your philosophy? It's like, uh, all right. Uh, <laughs> so with the context of, you know, the things we just talked about, you know, the, the self-organization, the motor learning side of things, um, I, I'll give you another disclaimer of this is essentially what the sports specific coach uh, kind of should be doing. Um, at the end of the day, you define the main and terminal skill. Uh, terminal skill meaning what is the end goal for this movement? Uh, if you don't have this movement, you are in the average percentile or even worse. So, you know, whether or not we're talking about the, the gross motor pattern of, you know, like sprinting, jumping, throwing, so on, um, let's define it. And then what are those quote unquote KPIs, right? Um, and then from there, we can begin to break down like, okay, do I, do I, the practitioner, think the athlete who is in whatever stage of motor development, are they up to par on these KPIs? So, so it kind of leans towards the coaches and practitioners perspective of, I need to make sure that I know what I'm talking about, because if I don't, I need to step away because that's where I make somebody worse because I'm, I'm overstepping and thinking about and saying something that I don't know anything about. That's the hardest part. That's probably the hardest part I see across everything. Um, whether or not it's telling somebody who's, you know, going to be breaking some records in the near future of what to do in the, in the, either the weight room or otherwise on the field. Um, that's, that's a tough call. So that's, that's its own kind of a rabbit hole to talk about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I quick comment. <laughs> I, I do, I do agree with you. I think that, I think that just sports skills in general are more complex than we take them for granted how complex they actually are and how many things fit together to create that and how many people just throw out dogmatic, you know, do this cues like in, in anything, yeah. running, throwing, kicking, swinging without like without a full appreciation of how everything works together. I think that and that's where I, I just remember like Dan Fichter, uh, uh, talk, I think and Jay Strader, I think kind of originated this, but like you you have to really, I feel like you, you, the, the, the responsibility to give someone coaching instruction is a lot greater than we think it is. Definitely. 
So wait, sorry to derail that, but <laughs> as you were saying. So so the answer that I'm going to go into, uh, it, it goes into two different topics of, of physics and then also uh, within the context of PRI, because that's the lens that I view a lot of things. And, you know, we haven't even talked about my perspective with PRI, but uh, we'll say that for another uh, time in this podcast. Um, so physics uh, side of things, it, I have a little bullet point that I'm going to talk about is rethink the planes that the individual will physically move through in order to complete the terminal skill. So with that being said, rethinking the planes that the individual move through, you know, if you're walking forward, well, you're going through the sagittal plane. Of course, you're going to go through, you have to maintain, you know, some type of stability within the frontal and transverse planes. But the, the plane that you're moving through, what is that for that skill set? You know, and if you're talking about football, you have so many different planes. You have sprinting, you know, you jump it. You have so many different planes going through swimming. You know, we can keep them going through all mm-hmm. the skills. Um, within the context of baseball, it's a little different because um, how do I say it's it's both a frontal and transverse dominant plane uh, in the context of pitching. Obviously, there's things that go on in the sagittal plane, but there's different timing mechanisms and this is well documented well researched within the six different phases of the the pitching uh movement so you need to think about each phase of that within planes if i'm trying to coach it Mm -hmm. and then after you're doing that now you have to come up with drills or me come up with drills to make sure that the person understands where to move and perhaps improve upon so, you know, you get this whole context of baseball sports specific drills and you get all these eyewash sort of things that are like using bands and this and that, all this. Eyewash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, sorry. That's a some more baseball word that's there. Um, just like things that are just complete BS. So that's a whole nother topic. But I think the easiest thing to kind of understand is rethink the planes that the individual will move through. That's, that's fairly straightforward. Uh, I don't think a trap bar deadlift is going to help somebody throw a curveball. That's just me thinking out loud. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So let's go into the other side of things. Uh, Your question was, how do you use and design drills? Well, I also think about it within the context of PRI because, uh, or even just the easier uh, phrase of what is the range of motion that that an individual is going through? What are the degrees of freedom that somebody will go through? Right. Um, So some of the things that um, sometimes these individuals and just everybody, generally speaking, will do when they create these movements and drills is they will use um, perhaps cues that will take somebody out of this very subconscious and very quick movement. And they're going to bring it to cognition, meaning your person will begin to move slower now and they're no longer reflexively moving. So, so that on its own is not good. You know, you can't, you can't muscle a 95 mile an hour fastball. Um, and if you do, it probably doesn't look so great. So with that being said, it needs to be smooth. It needs to be flow. It needs to flow quick. It needs to just be efficient and probably relatively, not only say effortless, it does, it does, it takes effort, but it needs to have some type of efficiency about it. Um, when you take somebody out of the subconscious into the conscious side of things, it's very difficult to do that. Um, uh, so how can I say, Within the context, I'll just throw this out there and we'll talk about it later, but within the context of PRI, a lot of people, you know, you're getting coached into often static positions. Um, but when you pitch, 
you're pretty dynamic. I think you're, you're very dynamic, <laughs> right? So how do you connect those dots? And that's another question altogether um, that I hope we can talk about soon. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, we can we can dissect that for sure. A lot of um, did you did you have more with that? By the way, I mean we can keep on talking about all these different things, but uh, I think the last thing I, I'll, I'll add to that is um, how do I use these drills and how do I design drills? Well, there's a static position. Um, thinking about Tom House, he used a lot of static holds uh, to get into certain positions, uh, and there's also um, and, and that's not wrong. I'm saying that's part of it, right? Uh, on the other side of things, you have the mobility and dynamics of a certain movement. You have all the different drills that you can do within the context of pitching. You have um, pivot pickoffs. You have turn burns. You got you know all the different side shuffles into a throw. You have all these different things, pull downs. But at its essence, let's think about it from the very first bullet. Rethink those planes that the person will move through. And then we can ask... Are they going to be static? Are they going to be dynamic? And then uh, I'll, I'll design a drill off of that. Yeah, that's definitely so the that's reverse the engineering, the reverse engineering element of it. Like what is, what is square one? <laughs> and to me, square one fits a lot too with like, well, how do I start thinking in the weight room? Like the reverse engineering portion of everything, uh, especially for more advanced athletes, obviously versus, uh, younger athletes. Um, but, uh, um, let's see where to, I, I kind of, I definitely threw a, I, I've, I've thought about that too. Like the idea of asking someone, what's your philosophy? Like, cause I mean, it's just, it's so open-ended. So anyways, could you maybe take me like, maybe just take me and, and maybe this would be a little bit easier. And I know like I've seen videos that you've sent to me on this before, but like, uh, yeah, just like some examples of how you might take. Uh, a baseball pitcher through a series of like if they have a deficiency what are you looking for from a frontal and transverse plane perspective how are you using pri in this what are some pri drills that you might utilize based off of uh something that's showing up um and and how how do you utilize those things Uh, does something in the weight room come into play Uh, when you design their weightlifting program as there you know are there things that you saw in the skill session that you're going to assign them later on account of what you're doing um, it tra- just, I'm, I'm trying to make my very general question a little more specific for you. <laughs> All right. So you asked like five questions there. So, um, to go into this, the, uh, maybe a simpler question, you know, like what is your philosophy? Like, how do you, how do you use it? Right. Uh, I think the, the question here is, uh, can you get into certain positions, uh, and can you ma- either maintain them from a static or dynamic perspective? I think it's a fairly easy question to kind of ask. Um, and then we can begin to dissect it. Like what lens do you want to look at it from? Right. Uh, I, I correct me if I'm wrong. How does Charlie Weingroff talk about, uh, can, can your joints get into, uh, certain positions and absorb and adapt to stress? That's a fairly straightforward, uh, definition that I think mm-hmm. he uses quite often to describe, uh, just movement in general. Right. Uh, well, I'll, I'll go into that context as well. Then, uh, can you get into certain positions, um, in a static manner, either on a table and then can you also display these movements while standing? Because now laying down is quite different vestibularly mm-hmm. than standing. And then when you begin moving vestibularly, your mo- the mobility that you're describing, not, not just range of motion, but when you move from point A to point B, you begin to feel certain things going on in a different manner in terms of speed and context of speed. So one of the, issues that I've had with uh, PRI, and I've brought this up um, quite a bit to some of the instructors, 
is the cognition side of things. And this is where I began to look up more things in the motor learning context. Um, I, I obviously enjoy using PRI principles, but they never speak about speed, mm-hmm. right? They never talk about, okay, you can do these movements relatively slowly with a lot of cognition, but what happens when you want to get into the subconscious side of things and move quickly? And that's where things get really interesting. Um, because now if we can maintain some type of sensation about things, this is where you can begin to dive into a different science. Uh, and this is speaking about the memory science side of things. And this is where, you know, we talked about Mike Zhao, we talked about uh, off, off the air. He led me down another whole rabbit hole of memory science and the sensory component of feeling. Um, because what happens when you feel your glute need for the first time and then you begin to explore different ranges of motions, it's a really awesome thing. And then you could do the one-leg RDLs, you could do the adductor pullbacks, and you do all those things. But how does that translate? And this is kind of getting to the heart of the issue now. How do those movements translate to pitching? And that's where it gets interesting because you can do the laying down movements, you can do the standing up movements, but what happens when you want to pitch? And that's where it's interesting, right? Yeah, so... But with the the PRI, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I've, I mean, I haven't been to you know, nearly as many as you or a lot of people who've been on the show have been to. Uh, but I do know that, it, yeah, it's very slow, static, like get in 90-90 wall breathing, put your, you know, lie down on your back, put your heels up on the wall uh, and and feel this and it goes very slowly. So what's the, or, or anything really, like I, I think about any way that you, uh, like just what uh, Doug Kachigian and I were talking about last week was like just because what happens when you give someone who needs a little bit more internal rotation more internal yeah. rotation like right. what yeah. is what is that that's to me that's so interesting because what is that process like that's that's I look at that as how I want to help athletes I see something they miss how can I give it to them well then now what and and so that's something I'm really yeah sure. interested so, in. so let's go let's harp on that question I, I like that question of you give somebody something right whether or not your physical therapist giving them. You know, you're doing some type of actual mobilization or whatever manual therapy technique, or you're, you're just doing a simple uh, non-manual technique is what we'll call it. So you give them this new range of motion, quite literally just greater motion. But that greater motion on its own does not mean you will be able to give somebody 85 to 90 miles an hour. That's just pretty simple as well. It's, it's just as simple for me to say doing a trap bar deadlift is going to get you faster uh, velocity or greater velocity. It's it's not that easy. So what you should kind of sense now is when you do a non-manual technique of some sort to gain greater motion, now you need to go through a guided discovery process doing the terminal skill set with different constraints. And that's where it gets fun. And that's where I'm living. It's pretty cool. Because if you can give them this range of motion or whatever you want to call it, you can now begin to freeze certain degrees of freedom. uh, And then you can begin to uh, alter how they perceive the world around them. And then now they can feel the the thing that they're missing while doing the terminal skill set. Now that's, that's where the money's at. Yes. I, I, and that's the rabbit hole I'm getting at. I'm glad you mentioned that. Like I, I just uh, finished up a book. Like four, it's like four or five things combined. Yeah, yeah. I I just finished up a book by uh, Helen Hall. It was a really, it was a monster of a book. Like I think it's 500 pages, and it was all about how she coaches, essentially coaches runners 
with very much that same philosophy, like giving them basically doing drills, uh, like a lot of Gary Ward stuff to like give them exposure to new joint ranges of motion, how joints work in conjunction with biomechanics. And then you use that as, uh, basically then you can go run and, and you use that feeling and that sensory feedback as you go. And I'm like, this is genius. Like rather than the idea of, okay, we're going to, we're going to lift and then we're going to stretch afterwards and, Hopefully that mobility yeah, magically yeah. finds its way in, you know, like, like, like the ability to do th- something like it's like a bouncing back and forth. It's like, use it, use it. And then, well, the motor program's in there, like you said, non-manual. So it's like main neuromuscular. Now find a way to use this that I just gave you rather than abstractly stretching and just hoping that that will eventually work its way in. I mean, I'm not saying that that won't at all by any means, but I don't think it's by far, not by far, it's not the most efficient way to create better skills. Right. And if, if I can, let me, let me get a little more specific because I'm sure people are like, oh, this is really great. But, you know, this guy read a lot of books. Uh, he, you know, been to so many courses, but, you know, what is he actually talking about? Right. I, I think that's the biggest thing that people are going to have issues with. So, you know, let me address it now. Right. Well, let me go back to the original bullet point about re- re-examine the planes that the individual is moving through? Well, let's talk about it now in terms of the, the pitch. So when an individual begins their stride, they either lift their leg up, uh, you know, whether or not the, they're right or left-handed, the opposing leg is going to be raised up, upwards. So that's a sagittal plane motion. Sometimes that, that person might be going into lumbar flexion when they do this. So that might be one thing we can look at. The next thing we can look at is what's the next motion they're going to go through? They're going to be striding in the frontal plane towards home plate. So that's frontal plane. But they're not just going to do a lateral lunge. They're going to actually turn their torso, turn their hips, turn their feet. So now we're getting into transverse. And then afterwards, we're getting into sagittal when they land their foot. And then they begin to uh, add stress and add forces into their lead leg. And then they have to get a lead leg block, right? All those things combined will eventually lead to ball release. And then whatever happens miles per hour, that's what happens. So with all those things being said, let's look at some actual drills. And, you know, I'm totally open to, you know, sending that link and having that be linked out, whatever, whatever needs to be done, because I'm hundred percent okay with being transparent with the drills that I just used. Uh, all I did at, for this one specific individual, we moved in the frontal plane and we stopped their motion at about maybe halfway through their stride in the frontal plane. So we maintained a lateral lunge position in the uh, the truest sense for as long as possible in the air until they landed on a step that's about 18 inches higher. And then they maintained that torso position. So that's just a very simple drill. And if you watched the video, I didn't do the greatest job explaining it. But if you land on a higher elevation in a lateral lunge, that's basically what it is. And then what happens out of that? You, you begin to feel the outside glutes, posterior glute med on the striding leg, on the back leg. So speaking about it in terms of the context of PRI, well, what that speaks to is a lift test. Um, it's not the drop test, it's a lift test. So you're getting, can this individual maintain a good pelvic position while they are striding towards you know, point A to point B on that uh, elevated surface? And then you begin to integrate it and you begin to get lower using the physics side of things. You take away some of the height and then eventually you go into the actual uh, pitching mechanism. And then you begin to add in the transverse plane 
And then you begin to do, in this case, I did dry throws. So we went back and forth, left and right, excuse me, not left and right, but we, we went back and forth um, between one exercise and then back to the other exercise, one exercise and then back to the other exercise to maintain sensation so that they could feel their glute without me even saying anything through the whole stride. And that's the biggest part. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I really, and I even think about, and I, and I feel like people are talking about this in terms of like doing uh, like contrast training, cluster training, French contrast and all those things about the, and even, and, and I remember actually, now let's talk about French contrast. I remember you wrote a, a thing about how well that worked for you for this vertical jump a long time ago, didn't you? I, I, did. I feel like I remember that. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was old school. <laughs> but uh, but I, I think about like... You know, there there must have been more, you know, French contrast, the way it's carried out, it's almost like the rest between those exercises is too short for, you know, textbook potentiation to happen. I feel like a lot of it is like stuff that's like, it's almost like neuromuscular windows of like, sense. it's almost like there's a sensory and technical component of all that stuff too. And the unloaded jumping, that's, that's where it's at, the unloaded and the weighted jumping. Yeah, the sense, the way that, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that contrast, that sensory contrast, because it's like you have to wait. And how I always did French contrast was I always wait like, I usually wait like three to five minutes between all those like blocks, you know, of the four and do a vertical jump test in between. And usually it would go up, up, up. But if I didn't wait, it's like, and that's where almost the, I guess the classical potentiation, if you will, kicked in. <laughs> and those, those like betweens, but the, the during is so, it's like, like what you're saying, it's like that symphony of, um the the feed, feedbacks like you, if we started thinking about things more in terms of sensory i think i think i feel like we just like to think about things in terms of force and sagittal plane a lot um and i like to think of it as is when you when you have these these beasts quite literally these these individuals that are trying to attain something that is very very highlighted and kind of uh put on a pedestal in in the best way possible of you know 90 miles an hour 95 miles an hour you're, you're not giving a greater engine and, and a bigger, 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 bigger engine because I've worked with individuals that have had a 500 deadlift, 300, 400 squat, um, and then they can't throw. So what, what happens with that is you're giving them a really big engine, but you're not fine-tuning the system. You're not calibrating the system to be super sensitive. What you're doing is you need to give them a very sensitive calibration system so that they can begin to fine-tune their movements on their own. So that's the, I guess, the end result for how do I coach individuals? You go through a guided discovery process, whether or not you're working with 10-year-olds or 21-year-olds trying to get drafted. And then at the end of it all, you're trying to make them autonomous and independent so that they can do it on their own. And that's the hardest part because how many, how many individuals, how many pitchers alone do you know that are independent with their own throwing process? And that's a tough, tough uh, process on its own, so... That's dude. That's where it's at, though. Yeah, like what you just said is gold. Like that sense, you know, you're giving them ownership of their base, their sensory motor system, and and making that their own. And you're you're feeding things in that'll improve it. But at the end of the day, it even makes me think about like um, just the idea of of kids doing like enough that almost like bounce back, like show them something from a sensory perspective, let them do the skill. A lot of bouncing back and forth. I mean, on on a more macro level, it reminds me just of like kids who get to free play enough and playing their sport you know it's like play your sport okay now go play in the playground it's probably non-specific but you're you're opening yourself up to or or even a different version of your sport you know if you're 
in a country right, that's soccer to futsal that sort of thing yeah like they're, you're just changing you're you're changing the sensory motor landscape and then you can go back you know and and it's like it, it's actually funny too how how skills can kind of marinate but i, I don't want to sidetrack that i i i love how you you're doing like that back and forth like giving them sensation and then because um, that's that's exactly where i'm starting to go with a lot of the things i do even just doing coming off um spending some time with dr tommy john down in san diego doing he just does a ton of like spinal flossing spinal movement spinal manipulation differentiation i've been starting to put that in between a lot of more things that i'm doing even just in the weight room just to give i've been on this idea of just rather than telling people oh you should just do this with your back giving them some some sense it some sense to it like they can feel it and then seeing what they do as long as you know as long as i know they're not going to get hurt and it's like you know the weight's not too much i in some senses i'd rather do that because i get to see their solution to the problem more so you than know, the, a preconceived position you know the that that can speak to this thing called um whether or not we're going to speak about you know two sides of this is autonomy that an individual has whether or not they are you know older individual trying to figure out how to do something or um, whether or not they're a younger athlete or uh, the context of uh, trying to improve on uh, their own skill set, right? Uh, whether or not we're coaching them on our own uh, from our perspective, the practitioner's perspective. Um, you know, you, we can kind of go into the context, uh, the questions of like the optical technique uh, side of things. Um, I don't know if you wanted to go there. Yeah. A couple of questions, I think. Yeah, I did. Yeah, let's cover that. Um, Because that was something I wanted to get to. And that's this idea that, and Stefan Jones had said it in a recent article he wrote, this always stick with me, the the idea that we don't have as many like natural, just natural talents as we used to. Like everyone's manufactured now. Everyone, you know, does. (laughs) It's like, if you're going to be in this sport, you know, X, Y, Z, everyone gets really coached up, more specialized. It's a little more robotic versus that, you know, that kid who has just played a ton of, ton of sports, had a good or great sensory system, you know, was able to take it all in and process it really well. And they were able to probably get, like, like the idea of what's your optimal technique or even like taking it to dancing, what's the optimal technique? Like how much how much coaching do we really need for this stuff? I'm sure it's different across the board. And that's why I wanted to ask you, what's the, you know, to, to, guide, to guide someone towards their own best possible technique, what what does that journey look like in light of all these tools we have at our disposal and all these you know what what the yeah I'll just leave it there before I ask yeah. four questions instead of one. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so I wrote down a couple notes. Um, you know if if my take on the optimal technique, what does that what does that even mean? Uh, going back into history, there is this thing, and you speaking to you know you're a track individual. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I don't know. Do you know anything about the Fosbury flop? Yeah, 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 and I'm sure you're you're familiar with what it is, but uh, just remember the Fosbury flop was was not known until 1968. But but the whole context of track was was well defined before then. You had to jump over via your stomach, right? Wasn't that something? Yeah, um, it was a yeah, it was a straddle technique. You had to kind of straddle the bar. There was a few different renditions of it throughout time, but until the and, flop, and, it was like a straddle on your stomach, basically. Yeah. Got it. See, I don't even know, so I don't do track. So yeah, well, five four. But, well, five four. You would have been, you know, if you were getting up there, you'd been like the setting records for height overhead. To I would have been have, basketball, honestly. Been. <laughs> but uh, within the context of the Fosbury flop, uh, that that itself, right there, the organization of those rules 
said, okay, just jump over the pole. And, and then who says that I can't jump over my back. Right. Um, yeah. And then that's, that's its own thing in 1968. The butterfly stroke was born out of interpretation of the rules during the breaststroke in 1933. So I'm getting these numbers, like why, why do I look up these specific, really specific things? It's, it's in the book peak. Um, I think it's Epstein. No, uh, Erickson. And- yeah, Anders yeah, Erickson. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what it is. So, so that was just like, you know, I listened to it the other, whatever, month ago or whatever, maybe. And I was like, oh, this is a good thing to think, bring up during this podcast. So those are two areas where it's like, okay, what is optimal technique if those optimal techniques, you know, previously only got you so far? Let's push the, the boundaries of physical and human limitations by doing something different. That's pretty straightforward. Um, so in, in the context of an expert opinion, right? What is optimal techniques based off of what an expert says? Sometimes these experts are really good on an execution level, but, but they can't verbally express what they are trying to, uh, what they're thinking or what they're sensing on a, on a, on a cognitive or verbal level. Right. I, I kind of think about like that. A rod. I don't know if you ever watched, you know, baseball or anything like that, but a rod was talking sometime this one time about launch angle and he's saying he's going down on the ball when in reality he's really going up it's, <laughs> it's just like he hasn't there's no like there's no good verbalization of these things yeah or michael johnson assessing like usain bull's starting bolt starting technique but that's a different story <laughs> anyways right so like what is my take well what is somebody else's take you know that's kind of where i'm going with it like my take really doesn't matter because sometimes an expert has a greater opinion so if you're just asking my opinion that's what's one thing altogether but if we're looking at performance metrics, well, that's kind of where I want to go with it, right? Um, you know, if we're, ta- I can I can only speak about what I've done on an individual basis. I can't say I've gotten people faster or stronger unless I know I got them somewhere like 1%, like th- this was me 1% of an athlete's ability, if that makes sense. So optimal technique, um, just in general, like if we're trying to give them a solution, well, sometimes they come up with their own solutions is kind of what I'm saying. Um, so sometimes the cueing we give them might limit them because the cues that an individual has from when they're 10, 12, 14 will quite literally stick with them because it's their first contact with some type of coaching in the beginning of their life. And then it carries with them through the rest of their life, right? In the context of uh, younger age, high school, college, and pros, these kind of skills kind of stay with them as uh, an individual progresses and matures. So on a psychological level, um, we are influencing so many individuals. Uh, so optimal technique can mean so many different things is kind of where I'm coming from. Um, but I, I don't want to just be super esoteric like that, but, um, I guess you could say, what is my optimal technique for an individual? Well, you have to reverse engineer it. I think we kind of got through there, coach them, guide them, uh, help them discover their own movements leave some room for interpretation for them to kind of figure it out on their own, which is uh, speaking to the memory science of things. If they figure it out on their own, that's speaking about procedural memory, procedural memory, meaning troubleshooting. And if they can troubleshoot on their own, I'm emphasizing that that means they're going to have it longer in their brains. They're going to have a long-term memory around it. Right. So I don't know the last time you specifically had to figure something out on your own, but You know, the way that you figured it out is probably a very similar uh, kind of like troubleshooting method that you use nowadays, whether or not it's a new, you know, route that you take from point A to point B, whether it's work or the grocery store. But if you find a faster way on your own, well, you'll probably use that way, um, which is an easy analogy to use. 
Yeah, I think. So. Uh, yeah, I think a lot about like I posted, and I guess maybe this is where people get the free for all idea. You know, like who knows? Maybe they're pointing that at me entirely. But like, I'll post a video of like a bobcat in or, like animals in nature. Like, I'll post a video of, like a bobcat oh. jumping. And it's like, it is in, I mean, you can't tell me that that athlete, like, or that athlete, the bobcat, like jumping to this rock, like that's like seven feet away, landing like right on it, like, or the cheetah running, like, is the cheetah running have its optimal technique? Like, are you going to coach it and make it better? Like, like, but it's like, but what's the difference? Then I, then I always kind of reverse and think, well, what's the difference between us and the animals? Well, we have more of that outer, you know, outer evolution Mm -hmm. of our brain, that conscious thought co-contractions that screws us up you know like shoes and environmental factors and being sedentary and all that stuff but like but i always uh, you know i i always pay respect to that and i think about that i always try to think about that a lot before i instruct especially in the context of track and field too like versus weightlifting i think i think it's different i do think it's a little bit different once you step out of the weight room what are you trying to think of the optimal technique side of things yeah in terms of optimal technique and things like that so so let me clarify one thing i talked about i said a lot of things um clarifying on the the 10 to 14 to 18 to 20 on the optimal technique will change on their developmental level and that's an important context because often coaches will see individuals in snapshots of their developmental process. Um, It just so happens that the private sector might be able to see some individuals from like 14 to 25, for example. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. If if you have that context, it's a little different versus if you only see an individual for three months and then that's it. Well, then who knows what you can help them out with. Right. I, I kind of lead with this question of what do you think I can help you out with with the time that you have here with me, whether or not it's three weeks, three months, three years. What do you think I can help you out with? And then we'll go from there. So I try to be as transparent, not just with the things that I'm saying now, but transparent in the context of what I say to the athletes I'm working with. Yeah. Yeah. I like I like your question process. I, I think that's I think that's so important in this like. And I've almost thought of, um, and I had this list as a question. I don't know if we have time for it. I, I want it because I wanted to, I do want to ask you um, just how this gets into your work with like just the weight room because you're talking about just doing that with like younger athletes and stuff. And I think that's, and I'd like to finish with, um, you know, because whether people coach actual sports skills uh, or not, uh, right. the weight room is always the area that binds us in many ways. But I've thought about like the idea of what if we just called ourselves facilitators instead of coaches? So, like, how would that change the paradigm of how we're approaching this whole thing? You know, it, 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 instead of a facil- facilitator, it might even be better as, you know, this is this is a student teacher relationship, right? Um, you know, we're there to help these individuals, these often young men and young women, to to understand their bodies. Um, because oftentimes there's a lot of psychological things that are going through, whether or not it's going through puberty, you know, whether or not they think about their bodies in certain ways, we can help empower them in, in a lot of different ways. And I don't mean to take that turn in terms of, you know, that empowerment movement that's, that's been happening the past couple of years, but th- that is quite literally something we deal with uh, quite often, you know? Um, so in the context of movement, I hope that, you know, as student teacher relationships go, uh, whether we're working with 18 or 14 or 12, uh, we help individuals understand their body better. Um, so if you ever watch me coach, um, one thing that I'd, I'd like to just point out is I I almost never say no is is an interesting thing. Um, just because I read just a lot of research um, speaking about negative feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. Yeah, it's just something that I picked up and I found it works really well. 
because a lot of people do say no to young athletes and young young individuals in general. Yeah. So whether or not there's a lot of chaos that happens, right? You know, this free for all that you're talking about. Um, I, I almost never say no to something like that because if that's where their brain is going, I'll just try to organize around it. And I say, okay, if you guys are going crazy today, because <laughs> it happens, <laughs> then I'll try to make a game out of it. And then I'll quite often say, okay, we did 10 minutes of this game. Can we do at least some type of circuit of like 10 minutes again? And then after those 10 minutes, like, okay, let's go back into a game. Because I'd rather get somebody in uh, from a younger developmental perspective to enjoy being where they are. And then they will stay into that process when they're 15, 16, 18 onwards, if that makes sense. So that's how I'm improving the relationship and then improve the skills. I love that. If, yeah, it's, it's a little different because I don't know many individuals will have the ability to work with these younger kids with this macroscopic perspective, right? It's you, uh, Here's an example. Did you ever have this phys ed teacher back in the day that you just loved? I, I did. I remember uh, a few of them. And they just kind of let us do whatever. As long as we didn't hurt ourselves and we didn't hurt others, it was kind of like everything's okay. So I kind of think of that in my head. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, especially developmental athletes. Like how often do we pay attention to just, yeah, the words and how that resonates with them and how it forms their every everything, you know? And uh, I think about, I, I was on the Dr. Tommy John show not too long ago. We were talking about the yeah. best coaches that we had or even bad coaches. And like, it was exactly revolving around that. Like I, the best coaches I had may or may not have been the best technically. And I was a pain as an athlete. I just wanted to explore it all myself. I'm like my 16 year old month year old or 16 month old son who just wants to do everything himself, whether he's good at it or not. He every, you know, and, and I had to do that. And, but the best coaches I remember were the ones who just didn't tell me, no, they just facilitated what I wanted to do. And they kind of corralled me in the right direction. And, they right. they knew what I was like, and honestly, I think my technique was okay. Like I self organized it pretty well, like and in 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 the grand scheme of things. But I think it was always like those coaches who are like, "Oh, well, you're not swinging your you're not swinging your your drive <laughs> knee right. Like that's huh. not how you're supposed to do it. You're never gonna jump like you're like, you're like eleven years old. It's like all right, yeah, I, don't, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or yeah, or like the actually, I quit I quit playing baseball because of coaches that told me no. Like they're like, no, you can't pitch like that. I was like, why can't I pitch like that? Then it just became this. I I mean, it was very. Right, right, right. It, it just it was it was not you know. And I I love baseball for reasons. I don't think it would have been great, but anyways, I agree yeah. exactly what you're saying. I think is fantastic. So, you asked me another question. How, do you, how does it work into the weight room? Right? Yes. Yeah. Last, yeah. last question I think we have time for tonight. Sure. Um, you know, how does this work into the weight room? Well, um, it, let's, let's speak more about the older individuals, right? 17, 18. Well, let's think of it in the context of, you know, get these individuals physically prepared. All these things kind of make sense. I'm not going to not make somebody stronger. Um, I don't want to get somebody to deadlift 500 reps and then make uh, 500 pounds for reps on trap bar deadlift or whatever it is but then they can't express force in a jump or they can't absorb force when they land. Um, what I want to do is I want to explore the sensory side of things so that they feel certain things. And then after that, let's make sure that they also get this preparedness, right? Uh, that's mm -hmm. still my role. I understand. I respect it. I understand it. Um, so we will do, you know, we'll call it like an integrated movement within the context of PRI. So we feel certain things, we sense certain things, and then we'll get into the lifting side of things as well. So the A1 might be a one leg integrated RDL, whatever you want to think about that. Uh, and then after that, we'll go into A2, maybe a max effort trap bar deadlift. 
And I don't think it's going to take away too much. And I don't think it's going to rob them of certain uh, physical qualities or physi- physiological qualities rather. Um, in reality, that it might even make them more powerful because now they sense more of the ground. They sense more of their body. Uh, so so yeah. that's kind of what I look at it as. And we could even take it, not just, you know, lifting heavy things, but medicine ball work, sprint work, anything that's remotely athletic, it'll go under the scrutiny of constraints led approach, the dynamical systems theory and neuroscience as I, you know, interpret it from several different resources. Oh, that's awesome, man. I love that A2, one A2 idea. Cause it's like, I, um, I, I've, the first time I ever heard anything like that, it was, uh, I think it was like a Yukon like strength coach that I read an article from like 10 years ago. And it was just something as simple as, as just very, you know, being very sagittal plane oriented, but just like, just like supersetting squats with overhead stick squats or something against go against the wall and do some constraint and then go back and just make the technique better. I mean, that's the simplest possible way you can do it. And as soon as I, had read that I fell in love with that I had all my athletes do it and then I kind of forgot about it and then now here I am like complexity you know throw a lot of complexity there but I get it like you just had me do that one day like RDL like you know we were going through that before the show and actually could you just explain that as as uh, probably the last thing and just to help people understand what the purpose of that single leg RDL sensory was to help them understand there's to help me and everyone understand a little bit more about how that impacts the deadlift so, you, you know, the, the, I think the things that a lot of people are exposed to now are uh, the, the arthrokinematics of what happens within the acetabulum, uh, the, the femur within the acetabulum. Um, but a lot of individuals are kind of not aware of what happens on a, a postural balance uh, perspective, meaning um, there are three components, right? There are somatosensory, which is like the feeling of things, but there's also some visual components and there's also this vestibular side of things, right? Vestibular meaning what happens if you were to happen to lose balance, for example, uh, would you fall? Would you catch yourself? What would happen? And then that is kind of would uh, it would kind of bring it into play. So this single leg RDL, just by standing on one leg alone, you are uh, enabling the vestibular system to be uh, called upon. Uh, if you were to take out vision, for example, and you did a one leg RDL with your eyes closed. Now you are truly using somatosensory and vestibular to regulate your control because visual does take uh, some precedence into how you balance. Um, Try doing a back squat with your eyes closed, you know, 315. Can you do it? Would you fall? What would happen? And, you know, whatever, whatever happens, happens. So not that I want anyone to get hurt. Obviously don't do that, but this, it, it still plays, right? You, vision plays into balance. Uh, that's kind of where I'm going with it. So long story short, the one leg RDL, uh, you would need some type of uh, sensation in your medial arch to maintain this mid stance position. So that freezes the tibia fibula. And then afterwards you would begin to move your femur into internal rotation because as you begin to descend in the one leg RDL, you are moving the acetabulum, the hip joint, over the femur, and you are attaining hip internal rotation. So while you are leaning over, you are actually getting sensation, of course. You're maintaining position with your mid stance, your tripod foot, quote unquote. And then on top of that, you are also improving upon how your vision plays into it because you are no longer looking straight ahead. You're looking down. And then vestibularly, you are challenging yourself because you're, you're quite literally leaning over. You're falling over. And now the question is, can you return to your original position via somatosensory and all the other things? 
by you know using the, the motor outputs of pushing the ground away and that's where the external cueing comes into play maybe even internal cueing because you want to feel certain things and in the context of pri you want to feel adductors glutes uh also the medial arch and hamstrings and if you're really good you'll feel abs so on that's i'm still working on that i'm still working on feeling abs so yeah right yeah i can't believe i said that all in one breath but that's kind of where we're going with that one leg rdl that's that's why it's really critical because once you understand the fact that you're using this motion in the sagittal plane and really triplanar motion now you're feeling it on your right leg and then you go through the same sensations on the left leg and then you go deadlift well guess what you just feel a lot of things on both legs and then you're now going to, and you don't, you can even do a body weight. You don't need hundred pounds at each hand. Yeah. You do, you do it with a body weight sensation or even five pounds, whatever it is. And then you go and do a, a bilateral movement. Guess what's going to happen. You might do, you might do better. Yeah. Yeah. Just expanding. Yeah. And, and that's like what you're saying is what I'm always trying to, this, this thing I'm thinking about is how do I just make athletes better sensors and incorporating that in a movement? I love it. I, I was going to say something too, with the whole complex thing. I was one thing that just hit me like a ton of bricks was like, it was like Chris, Chris Corfus and Dan Victor were talking about a speed circuit, a sprinting circuit that used to do. It was like, uh, like 10 meter fly hurdle hops, straight leg bounds. And then they'd finish it. This was a circuit. So go back and do it again with like a maybe 20 second, 30 second, like single leg line hop as fast as you can. I always liked doing the single leg line hop and then sprinting again. I never knew why, but and but it's a lateral line hop. And I'm like, oh wait, maybe that was good for improving that lateral, you know, sensory of my foot. Like like sensing more of the lateral aspect and action of your foot, because that's important in sprinting. And uh, it's just like the more I, of this stuff I hear, the more it all makes sense to me. So so let me so the one thing that I like to do is I like interpreting somebody's drill on their own. And, and understanding it better than they why they describe it, why they prescribe it, excuse me. Because I think the lateral line hop is good because you're, you're moving your body left and right over and over very quickly while maintaining a stable torso position, right? Because if you lost torso position, yeah. you'd be falling over in one direction. So especially in the context of sprinting, you don't want to sway side to side. You want to maintain a very straight up a forward and backwards position. So it, it helps out in the frontal plane in that regards. Yeah, I, I always just felt that, yeah, that I, the sensory aspect of that just hit me like a ton of bricks a few weeks ago. I was like, whoa. <laughs> so, yeah, anyways. Sure, I got to think about using that. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, good stuff all around, Miguel. Oh, man, great, great show today. It was great talking to you. Thanks for, uh, and I know we probably left a few questions and notes on the table, but maybe some other time. But I, I know <laughs> it's getting late for you on the East Coast, but thank you so much for your time tonight, man. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in today. Great to have you guys with us for that show. Uh, hour 20 of information there and just so many nuggets, so many things to take away. This combined with the single leg episode really got my wheels turning and it really showed up in my own programming and it was definitely based off the feedback of my athletes, it was definitely for the better. So this podcast has been really helping me as a coach and I hope it's giving you a lot of insights as well. If you enjoy this and what we're doing, definitely you can help us out by leaving us a rating, review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. Also, our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Be sure to visit their website and support them. They are suppliers of high-end training technology, uh, the popular free lap timing system, but a lot of other things, gym wear, K-Box, contact grids, muscle stimulators. 
They have the best of in each bracket of sport technology. So again, be sure to support them. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.